0: Welcome to So You Want to Be a Witch, the podcast for soul centered entrepreneurs and the people who love them. Welcome back to So You Bought. So you be a Sure, let's just skip half of the title <laughs> <laughs> Off to a great start today Welcome back to So you wanna be a witch Don't edit that out That is real life um, I am your host Sarah M. Chapel, <laughs> And I'm here today With my new best friend Obviously we have the same sense of humor Eliza Swan um, <laughs> <laughs> Eliza is an interdisciplinary artist Intuitive writer Educator and community organizer uh, She's the founder of The Golden Dome School And has a brand new fucking book book coming out, Auras, The Anatomy of the Aura, which we're going to talk all about today. Eliza,
1: welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me. What a pleasure.
0: I love that we're at the time of this recording, um, we're kind of all adjusting to uh, quarantine isolation land. So it's really exciting to be able to actually connect and use the power of technology and the internet to keep being humans in community.
1: Exactly right. I've got lots of Zoom dates going on today. It's really exciting. (laughs) Zoom is the only stock that's going up right now. Good job,
0: Zoom. Gosh. Um, But before we go any further, uh, can you just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do in this world?
1: Sure. Um, I'm an artist, an educator, a mystic, and a writer. And I do many different things. Most of them fall under the umbrella of. The Golden Dome School, which is a a roving school. We're going to get some land soon. We're a roving school, um, and we teach monthly classes. I've got a correspondence course going through the school. I host week-long artist residencies that are each themed after a figure in the major arcana in the tarot. We're now up to the Wheel of Fortune, so 11 sessions have happened so far, Um, artist residency sessions. We do public art performances, public parades. Um, And now we're doing online classes in the age of the quarantine. And so I do lots of art making, lots of performance, lots of teaching. That's about all I can think of right now. I think that's that's plenty. (laughs) I think that's fine.
0: (laughs) You're like, Three minutes later. Oh, that's it. Okay,
1: cool.
0: <laughs> so uh, we're definitely going to dive into the book because I know everyone listening is going to want to hear about that and about yeah. like, how to book, how to make a yes. book. Oh my um, gosh, yeah. But first, I mean, how did you come to this work? What, tell us yeah. a little bit of your story.
1: Yeah. I... Growing up could always see energies, hear ghosts, feel into spirits, I could channel. I was very fortunate. I had an aunt who has since crossed over who was a Reiki practitioner and an herbalist back in the 80s, and I lived with her for periods of time and she really nurtured my gifts. So as a young person, I trained in metaphysical arts with my aunt and other teachers. I belonged to different Western mystery schools as a teenager. I went to Buddha. This monasteries throughout my 20s um, but at the time that wasn't something you could really talk to many other people about it was very taboo, it was not cool um, and <laughs> no. used- so no. And so I used a lot of my visionary capacities to make art and to write. And I went to art school. And so I was living this weird double life where I went and got an undergrad and a master's degree in art. And I was writing for different art magazines. And I also was working as a tarot reader um, and teaching tarot courses and metaphysical courses, but, but kept those two worlds very, very separate. Um, the art world had zero interest in mystical intuitive and emotional experiences of art and the metaphysical world wasn't really tuned into the art world and so um, grad school was really punishing i was told not to make art about witchcraft i did it anyway <laughs> um, but didn't get a whole lot of support and so i finished grad school very very devastated and confused and those crisis moments can be really fertile um can be they're not always but in this instance i was in i studied in england at central saint martins and i got back to new york where i'm from and i had I was just totally disheartened. I didn't know how to make art. I didn't know how to keep teaching metaphysics. I didn't know who my community was anymore. I felt really despondent and I went, Um, I was serving coffee at corporate convention centers for money at the time and I went out to Colorado and I went out to a golf course at this five diamond resort where I was serving coffee for a corporate event and I looked up at the night sky and I this raven spirit came to me and said listen Art and spiritual practice are one and the same, as is science, as is ecology. The disciplines of science, art, and spirit used to be unified and bring it back. And so I went and texted a bunch of friends who were into metaphysics and art, and I was like, listen... I want to found a school, let's look for a property that we can rent for a week and just kind of test drive the school idea where we can study art, metaphysics, ecology, any teachers you know that are interested in those overlays, let's get this together. And interestingly, a friend contacted me and was like, hey, Raven's Crossing is a a piece of property up in Northern California Mm -hmm. that would like to host this, and Crow's work um, the gal- a gallery in Oakland would like to host a, an exhibition based on what you discover. So the Corvid <laughs> team came to my rescue and the Golden Gnome School was founded. And initially it was really rocky and weird. I wanted a non-hierarchical school. I wanted a school where we could study art, spirit, philosophy, and metaphysics all at the same time. I had never experienced um teachings like this, so um, it took a year or so for things to get ironed out logistically and in terms of figuring out what our pedagogy would look like, but now, The Golden Loom School has taken off, and so we do two week long artist residencies a year, monthly classes, we have a correspondence course, we're starting online courses. Um, And of course, the world has changed since then, so um, the overlap between science, art practice, and spirit has become something that a lot of people are interested in, and um, we're fortunate. (laughs) to be living in a time like that I would say
0: I love that moment of, of like transition I wonder if you could speak a little bit about that from like you getting out of school and being like why does everyone hate what I'm trying to do mm-hmm. um to now where it's like this is this is a huge moment um yeah. these things are intersecting was there anything in particular that you noticed during that shift or that that made you or like showed you that that was really happening
1: I think that at first when the Golden Dome School launched, I knew artists who were tarot readers kind of on the side. And I knew scientists who were interested in metaphysical aspects of, you know, um, agriculture or, or plants um and i knew you know a nasa scientist that was interested in the sentience of stars like i kind of knew we cool. were people that we're teaching these things on the margins mm. but it was not easy to fill rooms in the beginning so this would have been 2014 which sounds like not that long ago but actually um you know, it whispers of folks being interested in metaphysical things were just starting to happen. So it was actually difficult to get people to fill the residencies and to fill my classrooms in the beginning. And now there's waiting lists a mile long for each um, in-person offering when we do go back to those. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, the, 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 the shift that I noticed was a public interest, really. Yeah. If that answered your question. Yeah, definitely. Um and it, it's such an interesting
0: time to <laughs> such an interesting time to to be watching that really continue to unfold on like a wider and wider scale.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I teach um in also normal institutions. Um I teach at the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn and I noticed also that suddenly there were all these course offerings about performance and metaphysics, even in these institutional spaces that traditionally would have kept that material out. And I'm going to be teaching a course on alchemy. That's an interdisciplinary art course where we discover um, scientific, creative, and spiritual facets of alchemy at Pratt, which I'm really excited about. And I don't think, that would have been possible a few years ago. So I'm even seeing it in places that are not, you know, quite as fringe as the Golden Dome School.
0: Yeah. And last year at Pratt, y'all had the um, Pamela Coleman Smith exhibit too, right?
1: Yes. Yes. A couple <laughs> years ago. Yeah. And so Pamela Coleman Smith attended Pratt. So it feels really special to walk around on that campus and feel her footprints there. Um, it's an absolutely magical place, Pratt.
0: I wonder if you could share a little bit about um you know, when you're talking about leaving uh Central St. Martins and having that that feeling, um, these are my words, not yours, of like what the fuck? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> that um when you've been so deeply involved in in mystery school spiritual practice your entire life, how have you continued to like carry that forward? before this was, uh, for lack of a better term, socially acceptable. Because um, I think a lot of folks who listen here are in pockets of the world where it still is very much not okay um, yeah. and definitely not cool. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on continuing to like hold that space for your practice, your connection, and your experience um, when surrounded by uh, naysayers.
1: Yeah, I think an important part of um, being able to maintain a metaphysical practice, whether it's um, acceptable or not, is absolutely accepting your truth. And now that we have all of this online access and community, um, you can always reach out to folks, even if they're not in your immediate vicinity, and just be like, hey, I'm having these experiences. What?" what have you felt around this Um, i'm i'm the trees talk to me anyone else you know raise (laughs) a hand if your garden has a voice um raise your hand if you have noticed this about this particular tarot card so there are all kinds of online spaces you can go to now Um, there are also all kinds of kinds of cool libraries around the world too Um, there are theosophical libraries there are libraries dedicated to metaphysical arts in most cities Um, so I recommend hitting up these libraries a big part of maintaining my faith and my practice and myself has been pilgrimage as well so one piece of the story of moving from heartbreak to founding something that was meaningful for me was going to the site where the oracles at Delphi used to practice so I graduated Central State Martins and because of visa restrictions I wasn't able to really um, make money I was living off of credit cards and student loans and I finished Central State Martins with no clue about where to live where to go what to do and I extended my credit card limit just on on faith alone. And I said, I'm going to the site of the oracles at Delphi. And I did. I went over to Greece. I took a bus out to the mountains. Uh, There was a pile of stones, basically, where the oracles at Delphi used to sit. But it felt really important to me to do that pilgrimage. And I put my hands on the dirt there. And I said, what do I do? You know, I don't, I feel so lost. I feel like I can't be an authentic artist because I can't bring this facet of my, of my world into my art practice publicly. And I feel like I can't be a metaphysical practitioner because I don't want to be in hiding. And I'm hanging out with 75 year olds who I don't really agree with in terms of my worldview. We don't have the same politics. Um, so that was another thing going on in metaphysical spaces, which I'd love to talk about. It was it was you know weird politics? But anyway. I put my hands on the dirt and I said, what do I do? And I heard very clearly the voice of the oracles at Delphi, um, go back to New York city, come out as a person who believes in metaphysics and who is an artist, start having public tarot courses, start, um, teaching these things publicly start telling all your curators and and all the people that want to work with you that this is absolutely your belief system and just don't waver, you know, now is the moment to hold it. So it's really for me about putting myself into an energetic space that held um, the voice of prophecy for so long that helped me continue the faith because, you know, all of these, um, Oracles were, you know, slaughtered in mass when the church and state banded together to outlaw paganism in Europe. And so, if they could rebound from that, you know, I could rebound from grad school. A <laughs> <laughs> um, little context,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. I love the idea of pilgrimage, and I might. That sounds so, so beautiful
1: once we're allowed to move around the world again. (laughs) Exactly right. And I would say that pilgrimage can happen wherever you are because the laws of time and space and imagination um, can be bent. So if you want to put your hands on the ground wherever you are and feel into um, the healers, dreamers, ancestors who came before you, they're all there. They're all there in your DNA. They're all there in your molecules. Um feel into yourself for those who have come before for insight and support at this time um, and one thing that this made me think of actually was that i I belong to various Western mystery schools that operated with strict hierarchy. And So you would come in and you'd have to graduate up in levels and degrees that were Very much based on personal politics And so when I founded a mystery school, it was really important for me to undo a lot of that sort of damaging Hierarchy and also if you look at a lot of older Western mystery traditions, they have very troubling language um, If you study theosophy, they have this uh, troubling language around something called root races. Um, They have a thing called the White Brotherhood that they contact for spiritual advice on the other plane, And, you know, in our modern context, it just doesn't sit well. Um, We can't afford to have... Uh, races and ideas of purity and ideas of degrees and strict political hierarchies going on in our metaphysical spaces, it's too damaging. So that was one thing I wanted to do differently when I founded a metaphysical school. I was really careful um, not to center myself as any type of guru person. Um, I was really careful to make sure that when you come and study, it's not about you know attaining levels or degrees or gaining my approval um i was really careful to each time i meet with a group check in about the language that works for that particular group and not assume that i know what's best for everybody mm-hmm. so so much has changed about how we need to learn in metaphysical spaces um And I was working in my teens and 20s with these groups that were basically frozen in time in the 1920s. There hadn't been a whole lot done in the way of founding spiritual learning since then, so um, that's that's also a big task I think we're taking on now as as modern teachers and organizers. Is okay? We've seen how this was done before. We see um, Madame Blavatsky. We see builders of the Adita. And we see these old mystery schools that are still in existence but what can we do better
0: i I love that we can we can pull those those threads and then untangle them and reweave them (laughs) with with our modern knowledge our modern understanding and modern consideration
1: um it's confusing because there's not a blueprint either no you know (laughs) if you think about the word wit and what it has come to represent i don't know what the ethical consensus behind that word is or if there even needs to be one but that that means that within ourselves and each of our um, communities or affinity groups, we have to define what the ethics of witchcraft would be for ourselves and, and the places that we occupy. So
0: Very much so. And the power that those words have carried across time makes it even more critical for us to do that personal and, commu- and uh, communal examination of yes. how we're using things, because if our intention and understanding is clear, we can use words in different ways, but without them, I feel like they carry that residue if if we're not consciously engaging with it.
1: Yeah. I mean, one thing that comes up a lot is, you know, here in the United States, whose land are we actually standing on? And the Golden Home School does something called a Tarot-thon once or twice a year, where as many people as want to get together and offer Um, tarot readings and psychic services for two dollars a minute and all of the money um, typically goes to indigenous communities that are you know desperately trying to um, hang on to their land and um, feed themselves and support themselves Um, and it seems like it's only right to do that if we're claiming to be doing spiritual work on stolen turf so Mm -hmm. you know there's a lot to negotiate and there's a lot of different ways to do it as well
0: Yes, yes, oh, that's so great. Um, I'd love to hear a bit more about the way that you're running Golden Dome School because it sounds like such a like a, an, I mean an awesome project from like the work that you're doing, but you're also running it in a really interesting way and I believe you said moving towards nonprofit status. So can you talk a bit about the structure here, especially in light of what you learned from the mystery schools that you grew up in?
1: Yeah, the Golden Dome started out as a roving mystery school. So we have no property. We don't have a storefront. Um, I have an office. But when we do artist residencies, they happen on in people's retreat centers or ashrams that are sympathetic to our mission. And um, at first I was really wary of getting property because I, I just... I, you know, I, I assume that utopias fail. It's not like I want the Golden Home <laughs> go School to live forever or anything like this. But, um, as soon as property comes into the mix, things get very complicated and, and weird. And I just wanted the freedom to experiment and not, um, own anything. So for the longest time, um, I was just running it punk style. I only charged costs for everything. Uh, I, I, took care of a lot of the accounting and the admin and the organizing and then people would do work trades with me and it was really ad hoc. And now um, the school has started getting grants for our public performances. Thank goodness. So we've put on, yeah, we put on public, parades and performances in LA and New York that were fully funded and I started to realize that it just wasn't sustainable for me to run around and treat this like a DIY punk project and that it wasn't actually healthy for the school either and so I spent time doing research and I met with financial advisors to talk about different models that I could use and at first it was a sole proprietorship and so finally, I got the school its own bank account. You know, the bank account was kept sitting empty because we used every penny that was in it to do our work. And then I finally made the decision. It was a difficult one to make to shift over to actual 501c3 status. So we're in the process of doing that now. Um, And what is cool about that is that now the Golden Dome School exists as its own entity. So the financial health of the school doesn't affect me as a person. Mm -hmm. Um, The financial health of the school affects the financial health of the school. And you have to have a board. And so putting that board together was so beautiful. You know, all these people who have done volunteer work for the school for years and fundraising effort for the school for for years are now officially on the board and can write off their time and can benefit from when the school benefits as well. And so we're going to become a 501c3 and then eventually I'd like to... um, slowly i'm moving slowly with this but i i would like to purchase some land because i think that now part of teaching people spiritual practice is also teaching them to um, grow food and care for seed and care for water and care for soil health in addition to doing all of these um magical things that we do together, I think these things very much go hand in hand and it's time for the school to start teaching in that way and it's impossible to do that if you're constantly working on borrowed land you can't really um, create relationships with soil bacteria if you're only there for a week so um that's that's we're becoming five o one c three so that we can stay healthy and also so that we can get bigger grants um knock on all that is sacred and yes. <laughs> um, eventually we'd like to um grab some or get some land or or somehow you know work with a piece of land long term whatever that looks like. i wanna do that um super mindfully, so
0: yeah. Well, that's so exciting. And yeah. I, yeah. And I love hearing how you can, again, with the consciousness you have of, of this mission. And I, I think you're so right about part of that. And it is still pretty punk rock to teach people how yeah. to grow food. Um, yeah. You know, that, like that, that, that with these new threads coming in, that, yeah, like that you can create the structures and, and take advantage of what is available in terms of our formal government structures to support you guys. Yeah
1: yeah i mean who even knows what the future of all of that is um you know arts funding has been gutted many times over but even um, private funding is much easier to access if you are a 501c3 and Mm -hmm. also for folks out there running organizations who are considering um, taking the leap the deciding factor for us was that i could get grant money for arts projects and different projects we're doing, so you can get project-based grants pretty easily if you're not 501c3. But if you want funding for operational expenses, it's basically impossible to get until you're a 501c3. Mm -hmm. So we need funding for everything, you know, our we need funding for our accountant. We need funding for um printing out our correspondence materials and so on. And, And you need that status to be able to qualify for operational expenses. So
0: yeah. That's awesome. Speaking of other things that you're busy birthing into the world, let's talk about this book. Eliza's Life Sounds Super Low-Key and Chill. It was like... (laughs) Never not doing something. (laughs) I I mean, I love love people like that, though. I'm that kind of person. I think most of our listeners are. If you are a visionary, especially those of us that are are witchy folk or mystery folk or however you self-describe and are connected to things beyond us it's like there's always shit to do because people are talking to you about stuff you're like hello exactly right spirits are like go make this thing you're like okay exactly right (laughs) i guess i will. in our
1: sleep (laughs) (laughs) especially in our sleep exactly right
0: do you ever wake up tired i like wake up so tired it's like y'all i needed that as a
1: nap All the time. I have to tell my spirit team, listen, I need a night off. (laughs) Put me on desk duty on the astral plane. I just want some sleep.
0: Oh my gosh. (laughs) Oh my gosh. But sleep is, sleep is, I don't know. Sleep is, will come at some point maybe. Yeah, Um, maybe. (laughs) But let's talk about your book, The Uh, Auras, The Anatomy of the Aura. What's this baby all about? Yeah. You know,
1: such a cool miracle story, this book. I, um, I I had been a writer. I'd been an arts writer. I always write. I That's how I process things. Um, but I, I wasn't actually seeking to publish a book when all this came together. I had um, put together a zine called The Anatomy of the Aura about three years ago. It was a 30-page illustrated zine because <clears throat> I was... Noticing that aura photography was becoming really popular and that people were talking about energy bodies But that a lot of folks didn't have language for how The aura is structured around the physical body and how you could engage with it and also we needed an update on talking about um, energy bodies and auras because most of the literature that's out there comes through the Theosophical Society actually, um, one of the leaders of the Theosophical Society, C.W. Leadbeater, published a book linking the seven chakra system. And that's only one chakra system. Um, There are actually different chakra systems that have five chakras or 122 chakras, but the seven chakra system has become popular because this theosophist published a book about chakras saying that there were only seven and then published a work linking the seven chakras to seven layers Mm. in the human energy field. And this is just one construct for looking at it, but it's useful. And, you know, the Victorian idea of embodiment is so different from ours. They couldn't even have a chakra that was about, um, sexual organs they moved it over to the side and called it the spleen chakra <laughs> and then um we have you know other practitioners like Barbara and brennan writing about energy bodies in a much more detailed and modern scientific way in the 80s but actually in uh 2017 2018 when i put that zine and this workshop together called the anatomy of the aura i was like we're embodied even differently now because we have much better discourse about neurodiversity, disability, differently abled people, all kinds of ways that we're embodied. We're we're having much more sensitivity and much more complex conversations about this, but we haven't really updated the ways that we talk about um, human energy in accordance with this. So anyway, I put a zine out in the hopes that My main objective with it was, first of all, here is how the aura is mapped in in its relationship to the seven chakra system, and here's kind of a modern take on what that can look like. And so all kinds of concepts needed an overhaul, for example, karma um, or or karmic blueprints in the energy field. We need to have a better conversation about what that means as modern Americans, Um, Also, most literature about auras relies on developing clairvoyance. So there's often dialogue about seeing auras, but most people don't see auras and they're still engaging with them. Most people feel them. So if you're on an elevator with somebody, without even turning your head to look, You can very much sense the emotional state of the person standing next to you, even at a pretty far distance. Even if you're on an escalator, kind of slowly moving up towards somebody who's, you know, 20 feet away, you can feel like, oh, don't want to make eye contact, you know, and you don't even know why it's it's right away. You have a felt sense, or you'll walk into a space, and not through any visual cue. You know the space might be beautiful and be beautifully decorated, but you'll think like, "Ugh, the space feels really ick." you know, and I don't even know why. And you're reading the aura of a place or a person through your felt senses. So I really wanted to create language for folks around not just being able to see auras clairvoyantly, but being able to hear them, to feel them, to know them. So I created all these exercises so that people could get in touch with different intuitive faculties that were not just site faculties and fast forward a year later a publisher reached out and was like hey this publisher being central oops, not central st martin st <laughs> martin's press i've got a thing with st martin apparently mm-hmm. um St. Martin's Press reached out and they were like, hey, what are you working on? Do you have any books? And I was like, oh, my God, I'm teaching full time. I'm teaching at Pratt. I'm teaching at the Dia Beacon. No. You know, (laughs) how the heck am I going to write a book? Here's a stack of zines I've written. Here are some ideas. You know, I do write. And they pulled out the Anatomy of the Aura zine and they said, yeah, we want to do a beginner's guide to auras with you. Let's expand this. Um how about three months to make this into from a 30 page zine into a 200 page book. And I went, I don't know what I was thinking, but I said, yes, I just, <laughs> everything got behind me and just said, do it. Um, and my dear friend, Samantha Rehark um, did all the illustrations for the book and she did such a beautiful job. And she and I were really, on board with representing different bodies and um different ways to be embodied in the book in terms of visual representation and i put more than a dozen exercises in the book for learning to read auras not just through a clairvoyant sense but through all kinds of different senses Um, there's an exercise in there about reading auras with your fingertips. Mm. So scientists have discovered that human fingertips can feel uh, nanoparticles. You can feel something as delicate as like the bump of a molecule with your fingertips. They are so sensitive, and so. I created all these practices for um, using these weird faculties that haven't been explored in terms of aura reading. And so um, what about feeling nanomolecules in the air around somebody's body?
0: (laughs) That is so
1: juicy. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. And also um, Aristotle more than 200 years ago, 2000, what am I saying? Uh, (laughs) It was more than 200 years ago, ago. (laughs) yes. (laughs) Uh, 2000 years ago, Plus, told us in this work that he wrote called De Animus that we only have five senses. And he was basing that on things that he could see at the time, which was the nose can smell, the ears can hear, the eyes can see, the tongue can taste, and the skin can touch. We now know that we have many, many, many more senses than this. And we have a much better but not perfect understanding of the brain. So we have all these kinesthetic senses and felt senses that um, we're just learning how to define and describe. And so a lot of the exercises in the book lean into different sensory perceptions that we have besides just the five that we can identify Mm.
0: it is such a beautiful book i am fortunate to have an advanced copy thank you saint martin's Mm -hmm. Uh, and i i love how practical it is like it's very action-based this is you know not i mean it's absolutely beautiful and of course mystical but you're taking this work and you're grounding it into reality. Like this isn't like auras are like so cool and interesting. <laughs> it's like, this is actually an extension of being human is that we can interact with the world in this way.
1: Yeah. I Every time I give a person a reading, every time I teach a class, every time I, anything, I give people homework assignments because I think that in order to really hone in on changing our reality or changing our perceptions of things we have to practice it Mm -hmm. so the bulk of the book is dedicated to First of all, giving folks a vocabulary because learning how to talk about the concepts in the book is really key, especially if you're going to start doing client work based on energy. You should understand the terms that you're using and where they came from and um, why you might want to use that one or a different one. So I, language is really important to me. So it's a huge chunk of the book. And then a huge chunk of the book is exercises that you can go out and do. And it's not just person to person. It's also reading the aura of spaces, reading the aura of plants. I talk about um, learning to read the aura of the moon in the book. To me, everything has an energy field that can be communicated with. And it's really important for us to honor our sensitivities and not suppress them. So Yeah, it's it's very action-oriented. <laughs> Capricorn over here.
0: Ha! Um, <laughs> well, if you guys are listening to this, when it's released, the book is actually just coming out next
1: week, right? That'll be April 14th? April 14th is the pub date. Amazing. And I have my... Um, I'm doing a tour of workshops to support the book, but because of current conditions that workshop tour is being delayed. So I'll start workshop touring um, up and down the East and West Coast in the summer, hopefully, and into fall. So look out for a local shop. I might be showing up there to talk to you about auras and work with you on auras in person. I'm also going to do an online class, which you can find at golden-dome.org or elizaswan.com on April 14th to celebrate the book where I'll walk you through um, all the different layers of the aura and talk about the book and introduce some of the exercises to you online. And you can pre-order the book now just about everywhere. So,
0: Yeah, we'll make sure we have a direct link to the book in the show notes and uh, to those websites so folks can go ahead and snag it and It's so beautiful. And I just love, I just said this, but I love how actionable it is. I totally, I do love, of course, like, well, maybe not, of course, I do love spiritual books that are like very heady um, and like, you know, know, deep dives into the dreamland and like, you know, asking those big questions. But I really love, because I think auras are something that I feel like um, as a non-expert it feels a lot of times like people are just saying things they don't understand and trying to yeah. make it sound mysterious. So I'm so excited that like you've created a book that first of all defines terms, which I think it sounds like you and I are pretty keen on that together. You are we yes. already talked about this once. Yes. De- defines terms. Um, which y'all, if you're making magic and you don't know the words you're using, take a moment to define your terms because you, yes. like, this is such a critical part of of um, of, of magic making. Um, yeah. But that also is really practical. So we'll make sure we link that up in the show notes and y'all go ahead and pre-order that so you can have it and hang out with Eliza on the yay. internet. Yay,
1: yay. <laughs> <laughs> For now, we will gather in real space sometime in the future. And I look forward to it.
0: Yes, um, and that'll...
1: That's something fun to
0: look forward to, yes. Yeah. Never, like the post-quarantine um takeover of the United States and with auras. <laughs>
1: actually a lot of the exercises in the book can be practiced at a distance so you can practice aura reading with folks from all the way across the room and you can practice aura reading with your favorite plants um, until we can gather again so um, this book can be used right away
0: Ah, that's awesome! And like the plant friends are basically the only ones we can talk to right now. So I love that idea of like. And of course now I'm sitting here to like, one of my plants is dying. I was like, I should probably go and like do some aura reading on my plant. And be like, what's wrong, Don't plant? Need
1: your plant aura, yes, and you can do it. <laughs> My cat is absolutely thrilled that I'm home so much Aww. now. And um, you can practice aura reading with pets if, if they're down. Um, part of reading auras is asking for permission and getting affirmation that you can proceed with reading auras. So make sure your pet and your plant are into it. But, yes. Um, <laughs> typically, they love the attention. So, yeah,
0: my dog actually hates anything magical except for tarot. <laughs> Tara, she will come and uh, I don't do readings at my house anymore, but when I used to, she would come and like sit under the table um, or like right next to us and like, like lend her support to the readings. And now if I'm doing remote work, she, she comes and she sits next to me, but everything else, like, like any energy healing, anything like that, she like runs away. And I'm like, come on. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I get it. They're so sensitive. They are. His name was Harry Potter, fittingly. Oh my god! Um, And he would sit on my feet while I was doing sessions with folks, and it was very grounding. I think he just instinctively understood that he had to like keep me on the earth plane somehow. So, oh, I love pets. Bless our pets. Yeah.
0: Gosh, seriously, (laughs) seriously. And if you guys don't have pets, I know I post pictures of mine all the time. You can come look at her on Instagram. So,
1: yeah. You can borrow my pets, (laughs) book pets, you can have rock pets. You can have pets of all kinds. I have lots of book pets. That's a good Mm, way to look at it now because mm. I
0: feel less guilty about how many books I have. I'm like, but they're all my pets.
1: Yes. You're caring for them deeply. We can have rock pets. Um, um, That, that act of nurturance can happen with any being.
0: Yes, it can. Ah, Mm. some some animistic worldview for you (laughs) here for it. Um, yes one thing I'd love to talk just a touch more about because I was uh-huh. you said these words and I like a little part of me like died on the inside because I was like oh my god how you went from your zine to the book in three months yeah <laughs> how
1: how how to yeah. book <laughs> right I well I was lucky enough to have that 30 page zine and my editor Um, looked at the structure of the zine and said, here's how I would advise structuring an expanded book. So I had a blueprint already, which was fortunate. Um, So having a map to work from when you're writing a book is really essential, even if you change it as you go. So Um, write out a basic blueprint for how you want the chapters to flow how you want the information to come in what's important for folks to get to first middle and last and then work from there and to get it done in time because I was teaching full-time last year I did a thousand words a day Uh and so I did it in the morning, I would have my coffee and I would knock in a thousand words in each part, each section that I had mapped out. And they didn't have to be perfect. They didn't have to make sense. They didn't have to line up. Um, Some parts of those thousand words were um, just grabbing quotes from other authors that I wanted to cite or research further. So it wasn't like I had to come up with a thousand original perfect words every day, but I had to knock in a thousand words a day for about eight weeks and then i went back through and reorganized them so i had to look at and rework a thousand words a day for the remainder of that period and i it it took me about an hour and a half every morning five mornings a week i was really disciplined about that and then um because i was working with a publisher I had the manuscript done. It was about 50,000 words at the end of that. Um, And I sent it to the editor. I got some feedback. Um, They mostly liked how it was laid out and how it sounded, but thought that certain parts were repetitive. So I combed back through and restructured. And then a copy editor looked at it and then... um, we went back and forth for some months and then I went back and forth with the layout folks because not only does the book have to read well, but it also visually has to lay out mm-hmm. in terms of illustrations and word counts. So we hashed that out. So it was three months of very intensive um, knocking the words into place and making sure that it was in a structure that made sense to me. And then I was fortunate to have other folks look at it and say, <laughs> you know, um, Let's take this out of your brain bubble. Let's look at it. Let's lay it out. Here's what you can do to have this be more logical, or here's some um, grammar tips for you. So that's how that worked.
0: I love that the answer is the very unsexy discipline. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and just, I'm curious, you know, as a, as, a, as a working artist, someone who's been doing this for so long too, I think we live in a going to broad generalizations, we live in a culture that does not teach people discipline. Um, yeah. and discipline is either enforced on us by having extremely rigid schooling and then work lives. Um, yeah. so when we actually get to a space and you hear this so often, right? People being like, well, oh, I want to write my book, but, and it just never yeah. happens. Like you're working full time and you developed a structure to support that. Do you speak a little bit to discipline? Cause I think discipline is a, um, mm, a very potent, a very potent tool in our kit that, that is underdeveloped for most of us.
1: Yeah, what a cool question, and I'm so lucky to have so many amazing friends, and one of them is a medium, an artist by the name of Asher Hartman, who's based out here in Los Angeles, and he came to teach at the Hierophant Golden Dome mm-hmm. session, and at that session, we talked about spiritual discipline, and Asher Hartman said, discipline comes from the word disciple discipline is not about punishment. Now in modern language, modern English, we use discipline. So when you discipline somebody, it, it can mean punishment in addition to um, um, having structure that you adhere to. And that just blew my my mind. I thought, <laughs> oh my gosh, discipline as having its root in the word disciple as having its root in being in observance of spirit and adhering to a structure because you are dealing with something large and holy and you need a structure to be able to even process it Mm -hmm. is so beautiful. And so when I said about, first of all, um, having a finish line is immensely helpful. So even if you don't have Uh, I also do visual art. Even if I don't have, let's say, an exhibition coming up, even if I don't have, you know, a date that has been set in stone through a contract with a publisher, um, having a finish line can really help put in structures of discipline. So having accountability groups. um, Hey, listen. I want to get this piece of writing done by X date. Will you check in with me? I will do it for you. My very dear friend, Grace Cordell, is doing um, graduate work on psychic labor practices, which is so Ooh, That so is amazing, so cool. <laughs> right? Because we have no protections or anything like this. And so she's looking into um, the history of, of labor unions and psychic work side by side, which is so gorgeous. But um, she and I often do this accountability thing with each other to um, hold our discipline structures in place. So she'll check back in and say, hey, have you finished this chapter? I have finished this major piece of this essay. Let's swap writing and we don't always have the time to like edit for each other but even just checking in that the work got done in a very gentle loving way can be hugely helpful so setting up accountability groups can be really cool setting up writing groups can be really cool Um, so maybe getting together with folks that you know that really want to finish a writing project can be hugely helpful Um, i often when i can have meetups for um, practitioners in different cities however they identify they might not even have like a tarot reading practice or a book coming out or anything like this but they feel called to the work of spirit i often have meetups where at the end of every meetup i ask people what do you need uh, and an elder friend of mine who was heavily involved in ACT UP in the 80s told me that at the end of each ACT UP meeting, they would meet once a week and then twice a week as the crisis accelerated. At the end of each meeting, all of the activists and volunteers would go around the room and say, what do you need? I need a place to live. I need a temporary gig. I need X, Y, and Z. And then they would match with each other and not just meet the needs of the crisis, but also meet the needs of the community. So at the end of tarot-thons, at the end of writing meetings, at the end of um, practitioner meetups that I host, I ask people what they need. And oftentimes people need, um, hey, I'm working on this project. I just need a set of eyes. So um, friend groups, can be really important in um, finishing things. And for me, my friend group was St. Martin's Press, but um, I, I encourage people to set up accountability structures that feel loving, um, not punishing, Yeah, to get projects done.
0: That sounds so beautiful. And that's, I have a membership site and that's one of like, the main things we do in our community is just having that space for people to say, I'm working on this. I need help being held accountable for this. Like, and, yeah. and we can do that in so many contexts. And even now, right? Like, The online yes. space can become that for yes. us where we can continue to
1: hold that hold that room for each other's dreams, really. Yes. And people say the most wonderful things if you allow them to um, check in with you. I checked in with a friend. I was trying to write this essay. I give psychic tours of art museums. And That's writing. cool. Yeah. <laughs> that's like the coolest thing I've ever heard of yeah um, oh my god it's been going on for years and they sell out with long waiting lists people I bet they say do and, and people ask you know will you write something about these psychic like, tours or how you give them or why you give them or where this practice came from and I couldn't do it and I mm-hmm. asked a friend I was like I have been trying to write this essay for a year and a half Help. <laughs> and she said, Stop trying to make sense. Don't try to explain Ooh. the psychic tours. Just talk about the tours. Don't explain them. And it changed my ability to write the dang thing. I was like, Oh my gosh, I don't have to explain myself. I can just sort of describe this thing. And so having other people check in, even if they don't read your work, can be hugely beneficial.
0: Thank you so much for sharing, Eliza, and I think that's such a sweet note for us to end on, that we can all help, we can all help each other. Wow, what a novel concept. (laughs) (laughs) Community (laughs) and
1: collaboration over competition every fucking day. Yes, Uh, and thank you for your work, because it's so much about that. And I'm so impressed at the volume of people that you touch and help and put in contact with each other. It's unbelievable. Thank you.
0: Thank you for the kind words. It's like absolutely my honor and my immense privilege. So yeah.
1: I'm so glad we
0: got to connect today. And Eliza, remind everyone, where can I find you on the internet?
1: <laughs> you can find me at elizaswan.com or golden dome .org and in either place you'll see information about the book and the school and classes and lectures coming up.
0: Amazing. And you're on Instagram as well. Where can we find you there?
1: Yes, it's at Golden Dome School or at the Circular Serpent for my personal account.
0: Awesome. If y'all enjoyed this in our spirit of community and connection, why don't you take a screenshot of this podcast episode and tag me and eliza and let us know what you got out of this what your favorite part was if you're just super stoked to get the auras book um but we want to hear from you um and just post that on your instagram stories and tag us so we can see and be just super stoked that we're crossing space and time to uh to make connection
1: Yay. And we'll thank have you so much.
0: Of, oh, thank you so much. We'll have all of that linked up in the show notes as well. And make sure to go check out Aura's The Anatomy of the Aura. We'll have a link um, that you can snag that book. Get in on that pre-sale action. Um, yay. Yay! Uh, <laughs> and And start reading the auras of your plants while you're stuck at home. Um, yes. <laughs> be Definitely. great yeah I Definitely. think there should be a lot of like plant aura pictures coming your way I could like see Definitely. like a whole like like hashtag plant auras is is the new is the new movement during the I can feel
1: the plant queendom celebrating this already yes they're
0: <laughs> so like yes yes come let's let's hang out <laughs> yes. oh, Eliza thank you so much for your time and your wisdom today oh I truly gosh. appreciate
1: you what a pleasure thank you for everything
0: And thank you listening at home, all of you guys. That's why we're here. Thank you so much for listening, for being our online magic-filled community of soul-centered business owners changing the fucking world. I adore you guys and we're so grateful for you. And I will see you next week. Bye for now.